21CL Radio. You're listening to the Run Your Life podcast with host Andy Vassar. As always, thank you for taking the time and energy to tune in to my Run Your Life podcast series. I just wanted to give you some background information into today's podcast with best-selling author Michael Bungay Steinia. Although Michael has written several books over the past few years, the book we're really going to examine today is his latest book that came out four months ago called The Coaching Habit. Say less, ask more, and change the way you lead forever. And although this book, The Coaching Habit, and Michael's work in general is mostly applicable in the corporate world, I took the time to get my hands on a copy of the book and read through it actually a couple times. I took tons of notes and was inspired to learn more about Michael's work. Uh, The Coaching Habit, as well as Michael's work in general, I think has a great place in education and that there's excellent takeaway value for any teacher who reads The Coaching Habit, because great teaching is all about asking great questions. And in The the Coaching Habit, Michael uh, describes and outlines seven core questions that he brings with him in the work that he does in the corporate world. And he goes through those seven questions. And as I read each section of the book, I found that everything I was reading was... Uh, very applicable to the work that I do in education as a teacher. So I highly recommend that you get your hands on a copy of the book and you take the time to read it. Some well-known people have given top praise for the coaching habit, including Daniel Pink and Brene Brown. For those of you that do not know Daniel Pink, he is the best-selling author of To Sell is Human and Drive. And this is what he has to say about the coaching habit. Michael distills the essentials of coaching to seven core questions. And if you master his simple yet profound technique, you'll get a twofer. You'll provide more effective support to your employees and coworkers, and you may find that you become the ultimate coach for yourself. As well, Brene Brown, best-selling author of Rising Strongly, Daring Greatly, and The Gifts of Imperfection, also has some wonderful things to say about the coaching habit. The fact that you have such well-known authors uh, saying these things about the coaching habit speaks volumes for the impact that it can have on you both personally and professionally and the work that you do in education if you're a teacher listening to this podcast. Um, As you listen to the podcast, you will come across a challenge uh, in which two teachers taking part in the first two teachers taking part in this challenge will receive something very special. But I'm not going to tell you what that is right now. You'll find out what that is as you listen to the podcast. So thanks for listening to today's podcast with Michael, and I hope you find great takeaway value. Hello, everybody. Welcome to my Run Your Life podcast series. Uh, I'm very happy today to have, I hope I pronounce your name right. I forgot to ask you the pronunciation (laughs) of it, but uh, Michael Bunge Steiner. 
I would say that that is not the most accurate pronunciation of my name that I've ever heard. This, here's how I pronounce it. I pronounce it Michael Bungay Stanier. Okay, there you go. But you know, honestly, any, any kind of version of that, that's going to be good enough for sure. <laughs> okay. So thanks, Michael, for being on the show. I just, sure thing. I just want to give people, people are going to learn all about you as the, the show goes on today, but um, we're really here to talk about your latest book. Um, so you are the best-selling author of the book, Do More Great Work. And uh, which is an excellent book. I'm going to dive into it soon, but I've heard a lot about it. Uh, but the book we're here to talk about today is called The Coaching Habit. Say less, ask more, and change the way you lead forever. Um, a little bit of backstory. I was uh, in, you know, I've just moved from China. I was living in China for five years. I'm an educational consultant, so I'm always trying to learn and find out as much as I can about uh, different directions to take my work. So, I was uh, going out for a morning run in China, and I was listening to the Dean Pokari Meaningful Show, the podcast that you were on. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And uh, you were talking about, you guys were having a discussion about the book. And and so I'm listening to the podcast. I'm about eight kilometers into my run, and you're talking, it's all about the power of questioning. And and you kind of highlight in your book seven essential questions that, that we need to ask in order to bring out the best in people. So I'm mm-hmm. thinking the whole time, man, this has everything to do with great teaching. And uh, Dean asks you that, that question at the 26-minute mark about <laughs> how this can be applied to children and, and young people and, and their learning. And you start off saying, well, if it's about curiosity, and then you kind of backpedal and say, no, I'm out of here. No, I, I, I know so much about the coaching habit and, and asking questions and working with businesses. But when it comes to kids, I'm not even going to touch it. And I was literally during my run, imagine a busy street in China. I'm literally saying, no, that's not true. This has everything to do with great teaching. And I made it a goal to contact you and, and to invite you on my show to talk about how it applies to great teaching. So, which is awesome. Yeah. I mean, here's what's awesome about that. I mean, the reason I backed away from that is like, I, my wife and I are happily child free. And, you know, I'm just wary of claiming expertise around stuff which I don't really know about. But what I'm so excited about in this conversation is, you know, teaching and education is something I have a lot of heart for. I mean, three of my four grandparents were teachers, my brother is a teacher. Um, I had a year off between high school and university, and I worked as a teacher in a school. Um, so, and honestly, what I see as my role now is just I'm just a teacher. Um, I'm an educator. I just do it in the in a different context, in some ways an easier context than most kind of actual teachers in actual schools. Um, so, I love that we're having this conversation, and I love that we're going to figure out how these questions work for inquiry based teaching, how it can help teachers actually work less hard but have more impact in the in the work that they do and exploring that further with you so i say bring it on andy yeah i love it um so i guess i'm going to start right away with if we go to your book and we go to the seventh question which is the learning question now this is all the power of reflection and in my work that i do with educators we have to be reflective educators both personally but also professionally and so my question to you, um, seeing as the learning question is kind of all about reflection and what you've learned, how has your call to action changed over the last few years based upon your own unique learning journey? About my call to action, meaning what, how I invite people to interact with us at Box of Crayon? No, I think you... So, per- what you mean? Or- no, I mean you personally. How has, 
how has your purpose or or your desire to desire to change the world actually changed based upon what you've learned over the last few years? Well, you know, here's how it works for me. I um, uh, think it's important to have a sense of kind of mission and purpose in your life. It certainly helps me. And, you know, at Box of Crayons, we have one. We say we're helping people do less good work and more great work. And I think we'll probably explore that more in this conversation. But at a personal level, my my personal kind of goal is to, and here's how I frame it, to infect a billion people with the possibility virus. And that kind of really works for me. I mean, it won't work for lots of people, but it works for me because it's, um, it's really ambitious. I mean, a billion people... That's a lot. Yes. <laughs> um, the, the, the possibility virus actually comes down to helping people understand that they always have a choice in whatever situation they're in. And how, how do you help people make the more courageous, the bolder choice there? And the virus piece is a useful metaphor for me because I go, look, I can't personally interact with a billion people. That's just never going to happen. I have to create content that spreads on its own accord. To, to, to reach out and touch those people. So I have that as a kind of North Star, if you like. And then honestly, the way it tends to work for me is I will come to a, a, a moment in my personal and professional journey and I'll sit and I'll go, of everything that I could do right now, what's the thing that's going to have the most impact? What's the thing that's going to get me closest to infecting a billion people with the possibility virus? And what I'm trying to do is trying to find what I would call the next great work project. The next thing where I go, this is it. This is where I channel my focus and my energy and my courage and my relationship equity and money and whatever to try and make this thing happen. So, you know, writing Do More Great Work um, was a great work project. Uh, writing uh, End Malaria, another book that I did, which raised money to eradicate uh, malaria. That was a great work project. Um, doing something called the Great Work MBA, which was an online training thing that we did with 10,000 people showing up and some great faculty members. That was a great work project thing. And, you know, I, this new book is now out in the world. It's four months out in the world. I'm collapsed over the finish line and went, hooray, it's finally yeah. there. Um, so now I'm actually in that very next place where I'm going, okay, now what? You know, now what is the next thing that could be the great work project for me? And here's why, and I kind of hinted at this, here's why this is such a great conversation, which is where what I think is emerging is for us to figure out how to bring the work we do, which is mostly in corporations at the moment, into that world of education and how can we support teachers and educators and principals and superintendents and that educational system to 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 work perhaps a little better through some of the stuff that we might be able to contribute. Yeah, and, and I think that, um, again, going back to the, those seven questions that you outline in the book, and as I, I read the book very thoroughly, and, and there wasn't, honestly, there wasn't one part now... I will say, like, well, this is the first time that you and I have talked in person. You have not paid me money or paid me in pints to say that every teacher should get their hands on this book. I haven't. So I am advocating. But, but I'm willing to pay you money. If you, I mean, if you ask, I'm probably happy to send you a check or something. Yeah. No, maybe we can have a pint at one day in the future. But um, I think that every teacher and administrator should really get their hands on this book because it really talks about the essence of asking important questions 
And I, if I can summarize the big theme of the book, uh, you know, and this is, you've said it in the book it's, uh, yourself and on Dean Bukhari's Meaningful Show, it's staying curious. Simple, two, right. two words. I want to add on to that, staying curious about the world and its people. You know, mm. because curiosity is everything. And in inquiry-based teaching, you have to remove yourself from the desire or the the, um, I guess, default setting to jump in and tell kids the answers. So can, right. can you just summarize that that idea of, of withholding, giving information and advice? Yeah. I mean, I, I just talk about it through the frame that I'm most familiar with, which yes. is busy people in, in corporations and organizations. And we have a default to giving people the answer because we're busy, because we're stressed, um, because that's what we have a habit of doing. And we've been told this is what being a good manager or a leader or a good person looks like, is helping people get the answer by telling them the answer. We have a default to that. But ironically, it, it does a couple of things. It often makes you become the bottleneck. Um, it also, in some ways, is like trained helplessness. It's just like, you know, I go to the person for the answer. I don't be, I'm not able to figure it out myself anymore. Um, and, and, you know, ironic, I mean, there's a quote from John Whitmore, who's one of the fathers of coaching. He says, so coaching, and this is part of it. He says, look, it's about helping people learn rather than teaching them. And, you know, it's a, it's a, it's, you can play with semantics about what that actually means. But for me, teaching them tends to be at its bluntest, let me download content. Yes. Uh, helping them learn is helping them create the aha moments where, uh, they you know create new neural pathways. They literally expand their potential and their capacity because you're helping them make new connections. And the bottom line is this: people don't learn when you tell them stuff. <laughs> I mean, yeah. they just don't learn. It's sad, but and frustrating at times, but true, which is they typically don't learn. They don't even learn when they do stuff. They learn when they have a moment to reflect on what just happened and to make the connections. And that's what you're pointing to with that last question in the book, the learning question, which is, you know, what was most useful or most valuable about this for you is you're helping people extract the value. And, I, you know, for me, my, my teaching in, in the corporate classroom has, has evolved to increasingly, I'm like, okay, here's the topic, <laughs> right? Tell me what you already know. Tell me what you can figure out about this, about yourself. Go for it. And, you know, the, the learning and the joy is in that conversation going, what is it about and what do we think and what are our hypotheses? And if we, and it's amazing how much people just figure out. Can I just time and, out there? Yeah. Because yeah. What, what you're describing right there is that tapping into prior knowledge. So whenever teachers start a unit in the classroom in whatever subject yeah. area, you've got to ask those questions to tap into a, their existing knowledge. And it, once they tap into the existing knowledge, as you say, they have all these great stories, then you use that as a launch point to go deeper into the discussion. So I just wanted to make that connection. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, th this isn't just a feel-good thing. There's neuroscience that backs this up. So the model we t talk about in the book, which I created, is uh, the neuroscience of engagement. And, you know, here's the basics of it, Andy, and you probably know this, which is like the brain is scanning an environment five times a second at an unconscious level, effectively just going safe or dangerous, risky or reward. And that's just a prim I mean, that's a primitive part of our brain, the amygdala yeah. right back there, just making sure we're safe, keeping us safe five times a second at an unconscious level. 
And the four factors that we've identified that really, and you know, I've just taken other people's work and kind of built on it and created my own model from this. Um, the four factors spell the acronym TERRA, T-E-R-A. And TERRA stands for tribe. You know, basically the brain going, are you with me or are you against me? Expectation, do I know what's happening or do I not know what's happening? Rank, are you more or less important than me? And autonomy, do I get to make some choices or are you making all the choices for me? And you can see that in a, a traditional teaching model where the teacher is at the front of the room behind her desk doing the download of the content. Um, that None of that helps the terror model, right? The tribe is, is depressed. Yeah. The expectation is depressed. The rank is – all of those factors are, are making kids feel less engaged rather than more engaged. But, you know, if you get out from behind your desk, you get them to do the work first, that prior knowledge piece. You get them to figure out what questions to ask. You're raising a sense of tribiness, a, a sense of autonomy, a sense of rank. All of that's driving engagement so that they feel safer, they feel more engaged, they're more open to learning. Um, and, you know, the bonus is you get to work less hard. What you're now working at is controlling your own anxiety about, oh, my God, what's happening? What are these kids going to come up with? Yeah. Where is this conversation going? What if they don't talk about X? How do I handle that? So you, you, you worry about the process more, but you're able to relax on the content. Yeah, and I think that that uh, kind of what you're describing there is that idea, again, with um, autonomy and empowerment and getting kids to do the heavy lifting. Because right. cognitively, teachers, that's why teachers get exhausted, because they're doing the heavy lifting, they're doing the telling, they're doing the advice giving. So this really right. taps into uh, the student's innate desire to to be their own teacher and learner. And all of the evidence in education shows that the most effective teachers are the ones that help students become their own teachers. You know, right. so, so that idea of... Um, you know, you're describing the teacher up there at the front of the, the classroom talking is like the sage on the stage. This is the way mm -hmm. it is, as opposed to the guide on the side. And right. what, one of the researchers I'm connected with wrote an in-depth paper on the activator versus the facilitator and that idea itself. So um, can we transition over to that, that lazy question and what that means? Right. Well, let me just make a, a connection to lazy, which is the three principles we teach in our, in our programs. Uh, be lazy, be curious, be often. Yes. And it just kind of connects with what you're saying here, which is be lazy, which is stop working so hard, not just for your own sake, you know, which is like why teachers get burnt out and exhausted, but in service of the people in your classroom. You know, be curious, which is realize just how quickly you default to advice giving and content providing. And be often is to realize that every interaction can be dosed with a little more curiosity and a little less default to advice and to action. Um, and the be lazy question, um, which I think is question number three in the book, yeah. uh, maybe four in the book, is – no, maybe five in the book. Five, yeah. It's five. a question in the yeah. book. Um, and the be lazy question – and when I say it, it will sound slightly contradictory because it won't sound like a lazy question. But the question is how can I help or – or a blunter version of that is, what do you want from me? But here's why it's a lazy question, that uh, part of what we're trying to manage here is our 
default reaction, which is to leap in and start sorting things out, start fixing it, start helping, start providing the answer, start taking it on. And that's what leads to overwhelm as you as the teacher, but it also leads to kind of disempowerment or lack of autonomy or lack of self-sufficiency with the, with the children and the, and the people that you're teaching and, and influencing. And, um, you know, when somebody comes up to you and goes, blah, 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 for most of us, we're a quiver with the need to come in and go, okay, I want to, here's, here's how I'm going to be helpful. And instead of leaping in and fixing things, just taking a breath and going, okay, great, I understand all of that. So just out of curiosity, what exactly do you want from me? Or, you know, just so I'm really clear here, how can I help? Michael, can, can you, does, sorry, Michael, can you talk about, because you just started that question or started that statement with, um, just out of curiosity. And in your book, you talk right. about that um, lightens the heaviness of the question. So can you just, yeah, I do. can you, can you explain that just out of curiosity? Yeah. Cause, cause you know, all of the questions in the book, they can all land with a kind of intensity, a seriousness, if you're not too careful about it. And that phrase, this is one of those little habits, that phrase out of curiosity it's a really powerful one of making the question still asked, but land with a little more grace. You know, what do you want? That's a really blunt question. Just out of curiosity, what do you want here? Just, it's the same question. It just feels less intense because yes. there's less kind of focus on we, you've got to get this answer right or you're in trouble. Yes. You know, it's like just out of curiosity. How can I help? Just out of curiosity, what exactly do you want from me? And what, by asking those questions, you're forcing them to make a clearer request about how you can be helpful. A request to which you're able to say, yes, I can do that, or no, I can't do that, or, or okay, I can't do that, but I could do this instead. It gives you a place to negotiate rather than that default, let, let me leap, jump in and fix it and sort it and solve it for you. Yeah. And, and what role does the power of silence play within this whole process? Well, I mean, it, as soon as you ask that question, everybody knows the answer immediately, yeah. which is we're pretty lousy at using silence as a way of, of encouraging curiosity. And um, because it makes us anxious. Yeah. You know, you ask a question and you wait a heartbeat and then another heartbeat. And if they're not talking... Your inner conversation is going, oh, my God, it was a terrible question. They're yeah. stupid. They don't know what they're doing. Yeah. I don't know what I'm doing. This I've lost control of this conversation. What's going on here? But the, the two things to consider are this. Um, the first is, and people who may have read Susan Cain's book, Quiet, will, will have been tapped into this, which yeah. is if you're more introverted, meaning in this case, you just need more, a little more reflection time to come up with the answer. Um, that silence is an incredibly powerful gift because you're giving them the space to articulate and figure out what the answer is. I mean, when you're working with somebody like me, I'm an extrovert in that sense, which is you ask me a question, I start talking without knowing the slightest idea what my answer is going to be. I'm like, Andy, great question. Here are three things I'm thinking. Yeah. I don't know what those three things are. I'm about to find out myself. Yeah. Okay introverts in this context go, all right, right, I've come up with my three things now, let me start talking. So you're giving them that gift. 
The second thing is this, which is um, however uncomfortable silence makes you feel, it makes the other person feel uncomfortable as well, and they will crack first. So you ask the question, bite your tongue, you know, give it a whole five seconds. I'm pretty sure that after five seconds, almost everybody's talking. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I, I think I want to go to one one um, idea about um, the there is a need at times, and you talk about this in the book. But good teaching is knowing when to step in, right? Mm-hmm. And and that idea that I mentioned the the researcher that I am working with, his name is Dr. Dean Dudley from Macquarie University in Australia, actually. And nice. he, he did this, yeah, he did this paper. As an Australian, he's almost awesome, genuine to be awesome. So that's <laughs> he's, great he's, a, he's a good guy. He's a bit of a, uh, a, uh, a hard ass, let's say, okay, <laughs> when it comes to certain things. But he, he is uh, very serious about what he does. But that idea that oftentimes teachers have this, um, when they try to base their teaching on the inquiry, inquiry-based mo- model, it's just blanket-free choice. And they think that inquiry is all about giving all these choices and then letting kids run wild and, and not letting them run wild, but letting them explore and figure out what's best. But there are some kids that can't handle that. And I'm sure that you experience that in the corporate world where you go in and sure. you have some workers, some people that can jump in right away and, and handle choice, whereas some need more direct, uh, a direct instructional right. approach. But you know, in saying that these seven questions are very powerful, there is still a place to step in and and directly teach or instruct. Would how would you um, define that? Oh, well, I mean, I'd agree. So the two the two things I, I'd share in context around this is you know coming back to that terror model and a sense of autonomy. So the essence of autonomy is how many choices can I give you. And there's a thousand little choices you can give people all the time while still maintaining control of the overall arc of what's about to happen, which is we're starting at this time, we're finishing at this time, and we need to be approximately here by the time we finish. So knowing that you're responsible for that bigger arc. I mean, when I'm running a, a, a training program, I'm like, I have three and a half hours. I need to cover this key content. I need to be done at three and a half hours time. That's That's kind of non-negotiable. That's what people metaphorically and literally have contracted with me to do. Then within that, I give individuals as much little choice as possible. Choose who you want to pair up. Choose who wants to go first. Choose what you want to be talking about. Choose what, you know, which of these questions you want to ask first. There's lots of little choices you can give them while still giving them a lot of ongoing structure as well. Um, The second thing just to kind of add to this, and this is the kind of the academic piece is, um, some folks listening in will know the name Daniel Goleman. He, he popularized emotional intelligence. Yes. Um, uh, he wrote a, an article in the Harvard Business Review, I think the year 2000. So it's you know, one of these evergreen articles. Um, and he, it's called Leadership That Gets Results. And in, in the article, he says, look, there are actually six different styles of leadership. And great leaders, and you know, a teacher is nothing if not potentially a great leader, great leaders know how to use all six of those styles at the appropriate time. They all have, you know, pros and cons, prizes and punishments. Um, You need to understand what the, what the, the, the benefit and the cost of using each type is, but they all have benefits and they all have a price you pay. Typical leaders he found, I think use two, maybe three of these leadership styles. 
great leaders knew how to use all six. And coaching, being more coach-like, was actually one of the least utilized of these six leadership skills. So all of this is just to say, look, nobody is saying here, abandon teaching, abandon instruction, yeah. abandon, abandon clarity of, of expectations. It's merely saying that this teaching by inquiry, uh, leading with curiosity, is probably an underutilized part of your, your mix, your palette. And how can you get a lot more of that while still creating boundaries, structure, expectation, you know, for me, I think lots of lots of kind of here's how I put it in a in a class. Rather than thinking of it as a let's say a, a one hour class, going okay, we have it. We start at minute one, we finish at minute sixty. I'm more likely to go. There are four modules in here, or maybe six modules, and they go from minute one to minute seven, minute eight to minute fifteen, minute sixteen to minute twenty three. Each one has its own little cycle to it. And there's constant stops and, uh, you know, we're starting this, we're finishing this. So that just allows the kind of learning cycles to happen, people to kind of see it, learn it, embed it, clear the cache, come on to the next piece of the learning. Um, and so you've got lots of, you're actually providing lots of structure, lots of expectation to use that E factor of the, the Terra model. Yeah. Um, whilst giving them lots of freedom within those expectations and, and structures. Yeah, and I think it goes back to that idea, the pressure on, on teachers is that they have these student learning outcomes that, that drive the, the teaching, so the content that they have to get across and deliver. And right. I tell teachers, you know, I work with a lot of teachers from around the world, and I will tell them to um, look at these student learning outcomes as, as guideposts rather than, uh, you know, Brene Brown, I know you're familiar with Brene Brown, and she actually wrote, um, she wrote, you know, she opened up your book with a nice little uh, description about why the book is so, so excellent. But Brene talks about these guideposts in in the gifts of imperfection. And, And I really believe that teachers can relieve the pressure that they feel on the end product and mm. ensuring that these these students achieve these outcomes by looking at the outcomes as guideposts, mere guideposts that guide the learning. Um, how does that resonate with you and the in, in the work that you do? Well, let me ask you this because I think it's a great point, and I, and I, I'm reluctant to comment directly on that because I just don't know enough yeah. about how the classroom works. Yeah. My my instinct is to agree with you. But, you know, as you share that with teachers and the work that you do, Andy, how do people respond to that? I mean, what do people like about it and where is their resistance to that as an idea? I think the resistance comes from the fact that they feel that they're being evaluated by upper management, by the administration, so that they are ultimately responsible for providing evidence that they have had the students meet these learning targets. And let's, you know, when we're realistic it's impossible to have all of your students meet all of the learning objectives. So instead, when you create these unique learning journeys and, and give teachers that sense of empowerment in, in, in regards to that, you know, every student is unique, let them blossom the way they can and you're there to support them, they feel very empowered and, and they, they feel very positive about looking at it from that point of view. And how do you help people 
more actively manage those expectations from the hierarchy about you've got to tick these boxes, you've got to get as you got to get people across this particular finish line. How do you help with their kind of I'm going to say confidence and resilience around resisting or managing some of that pressure? I think it goes to teachers um, understanding and and backing up their work with the most evidence, uh, most current evidence based research, and and all the research out there is indicating that this is the way to go. So I encourage teachers to to read and to explore these works because it's going to make them feel even more empowered and and be able to say to administrators, if you can show evidence that you are a lifelong learner and that you have taken this approach in teaching because you feel it's best, the administrators will know you have the best intentions at heart and that you're you're truly there for the students and their learning. So I think that that's kind of the way that I, I approach it with teachers. And okay. what about now, what about in the corporate world where they have tar- targets and yeah. this might be a good time to segue over to the Margaret Heffernan uh, audio clip, the yeah, meaning of work, but yeah. um, so maybe you can listen to this because it, it has to do with uh, biz, uh, uh, targets, revenue targets totally. and, and all yeah. of that. So a little bit of backstory, this, this audio clip comes from the Ted radio hour. Uh, are you familiar with the Ted radio hour, Michael? I love the Ted radio, but I'm um, miss. Are familiar with the TED Talks and okay. the TED Speakers and all of that sort of stuff? Yeah. Okay. TED Radio Hour essentially takes these big themes such as the meaning of work. And then the host of the show, Guy Raz, he can be found at Twitter uh, at Guy Raz, G-U-Y-R-A-Z. He will dissect these big themes and have the top TED speakers come on to share their points of view. So I reached out to Guy Raz, um, a really inspiring podcast, and I asked him if I could use audio clips within my own podcast, and he gave me permission. So um, this Margaret Heffernan clip, it's, it's, a, it's an excellent one. So I'm going to have you listen to it, and then I'm going to have you talk about what resonates most with you in regards to the work that you do, okay? So I'm going to... And Andy, just before, before you play it, I'll just tell you that for me, you, you you temporarily froze there just a little bit as you led into this. Okay. So it may not come across on the recording. It may okay. just so you know that what I what happened at this end. Okay, okay. So I'm going to play the right. audio clip for you. Bring now. it on, yeah. yeah. Well, I think that's true. I think, you know, you need that great connectedness between people. But I'm also really struck again, you know, the large number of companies I work with and I'll say, you know, what's the driving goal here? And they'll say, $60 billion revenue next year. And I look at them and I say, you have got to be joking. What on earth makes you think that everybody's really going to give it their all to hit a revenue target? You know, you have to talk to something much deeper inside people than that. You have to talk to people about something that makes a difference to them every day if you want them to bring their best and do their best and feel that you've given them the opportunity to do the best work they've ever done. So what are your your initial thoughts? Because that's that's your area of expertise going into businesses and working with these these CEOs and, and people that have these massive targets in place. So... What, what resonates with you? Well, you know, um, 
it's one of those things where you're like, let, let me violently agree with her there. I, yeah, yes. Um, and I think anybody who, you know, speaking of Ted, has seen Simon Sinek's talk, um, hmm. Start With Why, Yes. Uh, you know, which is one of the top five or top ten Ted talks. Uh, if you haven't seen it, it's certainly worth taking a look at because he speaks to the same thing, which is nobody gets too excited about the outcomes like, you know, $60 billion revenue except for the CEO and maybe even she's not that excited about it. Um, but finding a deeper purpose as to why we do that work can really matter. Now, part of the challenge is it was like, so where does that purpose, where does responsibility for that purpose come from? And we all sitting around going, well, I hope my organization, my school, my principal, my district comes up with that purpose. Otherwise, well, bad luck me. For me, also, it comes down to a, this is your life. So what's your purpose? How are you finding your great work? Um, so five years ago or six years ago, I wrote a book called Do More Great Work. And there's a simple model there. It says, look, everything you do falls into three different buckets. This is not just work at a school, it's your life. Three different buckets. It's either bad work, good work, or great work. And bad work is you know in it's like the life-sucking time-wasting if i never had to do this again that would be just fine type of work so you know bureaucracy yeah. processes emails some meetings report cards um, <laughs> say it again report cards exactly all that stuff where you go what the what is it what is this about yeah. uh, good work is most easily described as your job description so it's actually productive and efficient and getting things done and kind of your principal wants you to do it and your superintendent wants you to do it. And that's great. And you probably already you do a, you do a solid job at your good work. Because good work, th these terms aren't about quality. They're about impact. But, you know, almost certainly you do a pretty good job at your good work. You don't make too many mistakes. You're, you're basically fine at it. But you're, it's also one of those things that can kind of overwhelm you and consume you and just kind of keep you endlessly busy. Um, and then your great work, the way I talk about it is it's the work that has more impact and it's the work that has more, more meaning. And it's important to hear both of those things because often the work that has more impact, that's actually got some alignment with what your organization cares about. So, you know, trying to figure out what, what are the key metrics within the context in which I operate, what, what matters here, and trying to figure out how do you do more of the work that matters there has more impact. But it's also the work that has more meaning. So the work that's about you and your values and what you care about and what lights you up. And you're trying to find that sweet spot, that balance between what's the work that matters and what's the work that I care about that's meaningful for me. And that's that great work piece. So the, the thing about the, the clip we all or just heard is, you know, in a company, you, you can't not have a target like $60 billion in revenue. That is just part of the game that you play in capitalism. Yeah. And again, I don't know enough about education, but I bet you the same is in schools, which is you can't not have targets. Same you know, idea. That's the, way, same that's the idea. way schools work now. Yes. So it's not like you can go, so let's just give up targets and we'll just kind of find our own way here. <laughs> that won't work. I mean, you, you might wish it, but it's never going to be like that. Um, it's about trying to find that balance between, A, what are the targets that actually matter? You know, because it's, it's, it's always easy to come up with targets. It's much harder to come up with targets that are the right targets that feel like they're serving 
the bigger purpose. Yeah. And then it's like, within that, what's the work that matters to you as a teacher, as an administrator, as a principal, whatever it might be? And how do you find time and focus to do more of that? And I think, you know, we're, we're um, you know, out of respect for the time, I know we just have a, a few more minutes, but yep. this leads nicely into the strategic question, which is all about saying no uh, to certain things, you know? And, right. And I think that my biggest takeaway from the strategic question part of your book is, again, the work that I do is about teacher well-being and teachers are bombarded and teachers say yes to everything. And when right. I look at my own consulting over the last year, when I knew I was going to get into consulting, I said yes to everything for fear right. of not having any work. And then all right, of a sudden course. I was overwhelmed and I couldn't be my best self. So right. the idea of what do you have to say no to in order to accomplish something greater? Teachers really need to think about that and that idea of what are they going to take off of their plate that might already be working to provide room for something even better. And, right. And, and, I, and here's, a, here's the challenge with that. Because that sounds good in theory and in practice it's hard because when you're saying no to something, you're actually saying no to someone. Right? Somebody's going to be disappointed, upset, let down, frustrated. And the question that lies at the kind of beyond, I mean, the way we, I mean, each of the seven questions in the book has a title like the strategic question. And the strategic question is, what am I going to say no to so that I can truly say yes to this thing? Um, and beyond that, the deeper question that resonates here is, do I want to be liked by everybody or do I want to have a life and do work that matters to me? Because if you want to be liked by everybody, you say yes to everything because it avoids confrontation, yeah. makes them feel good, makes you feel good. It just leaves you in a place of burnout, overwhelm, impossibility. If you've got the courage to say no because you've got the clarity about what matters, you go, I can't make everybody happy. That's just impossible. It's exhausting and it doesn't actually work. <laughs> so what do I need to get clear on for myself that I say yes to this and no to that so I can better serve the people that matter to me, that I can better serve myself, that I can have more impact and I can do work that has more meaning. But great takeaway value for students to understand the power of, of saying no and when to say yes and when to say no. And that's a life skill. So the strategic is. question is a life skill. It's not just about business and leadership and teaching and learning. It's a life skill. Mm -hmm. So I just, I, I just wanted to highlight that. So um, I guess moving over to the last part of the, the podcast, I know there's so much we could talk about. Uh, I'm just going to highlight these seven questions. You have the kickstart question. You have the awe question, which is great, uh, which is the awe question is? Yeah, so awe, A-W-E, that's that word question. It's an acronym. We call this the best coaching question in the world. So if you're going to take one question away, this might be the question to take away. It simply stands for, and what else? Because here's what you need to know, that people's first answers to a question is almost never their only answer, and it's rarely their best answer. So asking, and what else, is a way of keeping them curious, and in a kind of self-management way, a way of keeping you from leaping in and giving the answer. I've tried that with my own boys and it really does work. And I've tried it with my wife too and it works. So yeah, it, it is excellent. 
Um, so then you have the focus question, the foundation question, the lazy question, the strategic question, the learning question. So everybody can learn about these things um, when they read your book. So I'm going to just tell everybody the deal that you and I hatched before the show, which yes. was there will be teachers from around the world listening to this podcast. The first two teachers to comment on Twitter about the biggest idea that resonates with them the most about this podcast will receive a signed copy of the book from you. That's right. Yeah. And uh, you can be found. Can you tell everybody where they can find you on Twitter? Yeah. So very straightforward. It's at box of crayons. So all one word at box of crayons. A very teach. And Andy, how about you? What's, what's your uh, handle on Twitter? Yeah. My handle is at Andy Vasily. So um, I can be found uh, just using my name itself. Uh, box of crayons. I really like that. That's a very school teacher kind of uh, uh, Twitter is, handle. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, so I'm going to leave you uh, the last question. I put all my uh, guests in the hot seat uh, and I asked them a question to challenge them. Uh, so my uh, hot seat question for you, and I know you can handle the hot seat. <laughs> let's, let's see. Okay. I may crumble under the pressure. Is what are the biggest lessons that you learned or your biggest takeaway from, you know, you're from Australia you have a journey that brought you to England, to Boston, and ultimately to Toronto, Ontario, Canada. But what yep. is what is the, the biggest lessons that you've learned from your transition from Australia to Toronto, Canada that have made a, a big difference in your life? Well, yeah, there's a number of lessons. One is how hard it is to escape from the place that you've grown up. And I mean that in a good way, in the sense that when I go back to Australia, I feel immense nostalgia for the landscape, the smell, the feel of the sun. It just feels right. So if you, you know, I have never read Proust, but if you, it's kind of this Proustian moment where you know you're like, oh, I'm smelling eucalyptus in Canberra, my hometown. Yeah. Oh, I get these flashbacks to me as a you know four year old, an eight year old, a sixteen year old. So there's something about that. Um, you know, I think part of what I've learned from the amount of traveling I do and, have, you know, different places I've lived because we've lived in four or five different cities and, and the like, my wife and I, is how hard it is to make friends and not just kind of acquaintances because you can make those, but to find the people where you're like, oh, you and I really get each other other you and I have a kind of connection you know you're, you, you understand me I understand you you make me laugh I can hang out with you um, and just going so when you find those people hang on to those people and nurture those relationships and um, don't treat them casually because they are precious yeah kindred spirits right right yeah so, Michael, I want to thank you for your time. I'm just going to wrap up here. Um, I really appreciate it. And, and your book is an excellent resource for teachers. And I hope that we kickstart the process of getting all teachers to read The Coaching Habits. So, everybody, thank you, for, thank you for tuning in to my Run Your Life podcast series. And I hope you come back to listen to future episodes. Thanks for listening to the Run Your Life podcast by Andy Vasily. To check out show notes, get some more information about Andy as well as his guests, head to our website, 21clradio.com.